the Word of God speaks to all of what we're going through. It's, uh, it's been a wonderful experience for us at our church to go back to the book of Acts. That's the series that we're in. We're doing a series called 2.0, where we're looking at all the, the sort of foundational paradigmatic stories in the book of Acts in order to reevaluate everything we think we know about church. Because that's what transitions do. When, when things are going great, and when everything is, when you've got all this momentum, you don't really have to think about anything. You just keep doing what's working. But, but then whenever there is a turn, whenever there's a transition, you need to stop and you need to, you need to ask basic questions. What is the church? Like, what are we supposed to be doing? What is this all about? And you're not the only church in a place like this. In fact, I'm sure you know, COVID you know, went through the church like somebody, you know, pulling on a blanket. It was just a huge earthquake. It was a huge upheaval. Uh, there are tons of churches right now that are in the same boat that you're in in terms of transitioning leadership-wise. But then there are other churches that are just responding to the fact that the world has changed. Right? Have you noticed that? Uh, we, we were kind of a little bit behind Hamilton where, where we are in terms of the population shift uh, but then COVID really expedited that process. So over the course of, of COVID, we had a ton of people moving out of Toronto into Aurelia because of the new realities around work, right? Now you can work remotely. Uh, you only need to be in the office three, maybe four days a week. And so everybody and their brothers moving to Aurelia. We did a, our, our own congregational survey. I heard you talking about doing a congregational survey. We did our own just a little while ago and discovered that 35% of our people are new. That's incredible. Like, they're basically COVID babies, we're thinking of. They either came just before COVID, but we never really got to know them because of COVID, or they came during COVID. Uh, massive shifts. And, and so always in Christianity, when you're facing an uncertain future, the smartest thing for you to do is actually look backwards to remember how God has been faithful in the past. You just sang that, didn't you? Uh, I, I, we don't use that song at our church, but I heard it a couple times before. You were faithful then, you'll be faithful now. Isn't that basically what you said? That's how you do it. In Christianity, there's this weird reality where back is the way forward. When you get lost or when the future is uncertain, you stop and you look back and you try to remember who God is and how God has worked in the past, and that gives you confidence and clarity moving forward. And so that's hopefully what, what this process that we're in our church going through the book of Acts uh, has, that's how it's served us. And I'm hopeful it'll serve you that way as well. So we're at Acts 9, 26 to 31. Uh, these are the hidden years of the Apostle Paul that we're, that we're going to actually be talking about today. It's a bit of an odd topic, but it's very interesting. If you've ever read through the, the book of Acts before, you've probably noticed that there is a gap in terms of what it tells you about the Apostle Paul. He comes onto the scene like a house on fire, doesn't he? You know that story about uh, Saul's conversion on the road to Damascus? That's an amazing story. Uh, he's struck by lightning, as it were. There's the, he has this incredible vision, and he's completely turned around. He, he's marching up to Damascus as a terrorist, and then basically he becomes the greatest evangelist the church has ever seen. It's remarkable. So we know that story. And then, of course, if you've spent any time in the church, you know about all the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to the churches that he planted. So you know about his missionary journeys. You know about his great, you know, sort of veteran grandpa pastor feel. 
Uh, you know, he would write to the church in this very fatherly tone. It's wonderful. But what we don't know a lot about is the years between, because there's a gap. Paul comes onto the scene. He does all this incredible stuff. He comes out like a house on fire, setting the world upside down. He's confounding the Jewish authorities. And then God sends him into utter obscurity in Tarsus, in the province of Cilicia, for the better part of a decade. These are the little gaps we miss when we read the Bible, you know? We, just, we, we don't realize, because it only took us 10 minutes to read from Acts 9 to Acts 11. We figure, well, maybe Paul was only gone for 10 minutes. You don't realize, it's a decade underneath that 10 minutes. Why would God do that? Why would, would God send this incredibly gifted person into exile, into obscurity for the better part of a decade? That's kind of what we're going to look at. And by looking at these hidden years, and they're hidden in the sense that they're not as obvious as the other stuff in the Acts of the Apostles, but we can fill in the gaps, actually, from little biographical details that Paul makes in some of his letters. But by looking at these hidden years, we learn some really important things about how God works, about the wise, slow, gentle providence of God, both in growing a church and also in preparing leaders. So that's what we're looking at today. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 26. And you've probably noticed my voice isn't super. It's wonderful we got this microphone working because I have been fighting with a, a sore throat for the better part of a week. So I'm not trying to be Barry White. I, I'm just trying to deal with the limitations I have. So hopefully this will, will press through. Of course, no one in this room knows who Barry White is. And shame on you. Google that on your way home. All right, here we go. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In essence, this morning, I want to look at this gap. The gap from the, the passage we just finished reading to Acts 11.25. So if you've got a Bible, it's probably just one page. Just, just flip over one page. If you have a phone, just do this like three or four times. All right? And see Acts 11.25. In Acts 11, the church in Antioch had begun to grow. So Antioch was, um, well, Antioch's in Syria. So if you know any Middle East geography, Israel's a very narrow little country right on the Mediterranean Sea. And then to the north of that country is a country called Syria or a region called Syria. And so there was this city there called Antioch. And Antioch was an, uh, an unusual church because to the best of our knowledge, it's the first time in a church where we have Jews and Gentiles worshiping and serving side by side. 
Up until this point, the church had been majority Jewish. Now, in Acts chapter 6, we have a story about some Greek-speaking Jews who started getting connected. That was pretty exciting. But these people are not just Greek-speaking Jews. They're Greek-speaking not Jews. They're full Gentiles. And so in Antioch, we've got all of a sudden this new thing. It's like the gospel has leapt another boundary. And by the way, if you're reading Acts, it, it, there's like a bomb that goes off in Acts chapter 2 when the Spirit falls. And then what happens is the church kind of ripples out and crosses boundary after boundary after boundary. So the first boundary it crosses is Greek-speaking Jews. So now we've got, you know, the, the Jews that the regular, you know, full Jews look down on, the diaspora Jews, the Greek-speaking Jews. That's the first ripple. Then you, then you start wrapping in Samaritans, right? And people who are ritually impure, the Ethiopian eunuch. And so we're, we're rippling out. But now when you get to this story in Antioch, in, in Acts 11, and of course, sorry, in Acts chapter 10, you've got the first Gentile household wrapped in, Cornelius. But, but now it's one further step, because now we're not just having Gentiles get saved, we're having Gentile and Jewish folks mingling together at church. We got a, a, a church that's not just you know, it would be one thing if there was a Jewish church in Antioch and side by side a Gentile church, but they're together. So anyway, they send Barnabas out to investigate that. Verse 25 says this, Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he, when he saw what was going on, when he understood what God was doing, he knew that this movement needed a particular type of leader. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Isn't that interesting? Because, you know, they were first called Christians because up until this point, they didn't need a special name. They were just Jews who liked Jesus. They were Jews who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But now we got people who aren't Jews. And so what are we going to call them? And so they call them Christians. So again, this is just a whole new day. This is a whole new phase in the life of the church. And so it needed a whole new leader. And that's why Barnabas went to go get Saul. But why did he have to go get him in the first place? That's the question. Why had God sent Saul into obscurity for almost a decade? I think the first part of the answer has to be this. Because leadership is about more than passion, boldness, and charisma. Because Paul had those things right out of the gate. He had those things in Acts 9. He was passionate, he was bold, and he had charisma. Look at, if you've got your Bible, look at Acts 9, 28 to 29. Luke says, so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. So Paul was a rock star out of the gate, his, his preparation had been incredible. He had been to Hebrew Harvard. You know, we're, we, we find out that, that he studied at the feet of Gamaliel, which was a, the most prestigious rabbi in Jerusalem. So Paul was maximally educated. He was an up-and-comer. He tells us that himself in Galatians 1. We could have figured that out on our own from Acts chapter 7 because we see Paul functioning as like a junior clerk of the Jewish Senate. He's, everybody's laying their cloaks at his feet. He's overseeing the initial persecution of the Christians. 
You don't give those kinds of positions to C students, right? Those kind of positions go to the stars. And Paul was a star. And now he was on our team. So this would be like if Richard Dawkins converted to Christianity. Can you imagine that? By the way, it's, it's, not, it's not out of the realm of possibility. Richard Dawkins is kind of the atheist that um, you know, people your age look to as kind of a superstar. You go back a generation, there was a fellow named Anthony Flew who was the most renowned atheist in the world. Now, Anthony Flew did not convert to Christianity, but he did give up atheism near the end of his life. Can you imagine that, though? Can you imagine if Richard Dawkins converted to Christianity? Well, you know what would happen in today's evangelical church. We would put him on every stage in Christendom within two weeks, wouldn't we? He'd, he'd be the keynote speaker at T4G. He'd be given the commencement address at Liberty University, right? We would put him on stage immediately. That's how it would go down today. But that's not how it went down there. God sent this superstar into obscurity because leadership is about more than passion, boldness, and charisma. Paul needed to learn to walk with a limp. And church history tells us that after his time in Tarsus, he did, both literally and metaphorically. We don't know everything that we'd like to know about Paul's time in Tarsus. There are things we can sort of guess or imagine uh, certainly, he would have gone back and started up tent making again. He had to feed himself somehow. We presume that he spent a fair bit of time studying Greek culture. That's, again, one of the reasons Barnabas thought, well, right away, we've got to go get Paul. We've got to get somebody who understands Greek culture and Jewish culture to pastor this particular church. And later in his life, Paul was very fluent quoting Greek philosophers, something he would not have learned at the feet of Gamaliel. So we can presume some of that. But some things we know because of other things Paul said in his letters. So, for example, in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four, 24, Paul says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Historian John Pollock says here, writing in A.D. 56, he's speaking about Paul, writing in A.D. 56, he mentions being punished no less than five times by the Jewish 40 stripes save one. Yet none of this is recorded in Acts. Thus, it is probable that he was whipped more than once in the hidden years at Tarsus. Scourging was regarded as the correction of a brother, purging his offense that he might resume a place in the family of the synagogue. Isn't that interesting? So it seems that when Paul was in Tarsus, he was preaching Jesus in his home synagogue. And he would have the right to do that as a well-trained scholar in the Torah. So he would preach, and then when he offended the elders of the synagogue to a certain extent, he would, rather than being kicked out of the synagogue, if he submitted to church discipline, he could resume his place. And so rather than be silent, Paul says five times he submitted to that punishment. Five times. Paula gives us an idea of what that would, look, would have looked like. He says, watched by the congregation, he was bent and bound between two pillars. The Hazan, possibly the same who had taught him as a boy, solemnly tore at his robe until his torso was bare. The Hazan picked up a heavy whip formed by a four-pronged strap 
of calf hide with two prongs of ass hide, long enough to reach the navel from behind and above. He stood on a stone and with one hand using all his might, brought it down over Paul's shoulder to curl around and cut his chest. Thirteen lashes were counted, while a reader intoned curses from the law. If thou wilt not observe to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that thou mayest fear this glorious and fearful name, the Lord thy God, then the Lord will make thy plagues wonderful. After the 13 on the chest, the whipping was transferred to the back. 13 hard strokes across one shoulder, 13 across the other, cutting across wheels already bleeding. The synagogue elder in charge could stop the punishment if the prisoner collapsed or lost control of his bowels. But such mercy can have been exercised seldom, for the scourger was expressly indemnified if the victim died. Paul endured to the end, tasting not only the agony he had inflicted on others, but the sharing of his pain with Jesus. Remember, before his conversion, Paul had been in charge of rounding up Jewish Christians to face this kind of discipline. And so here is Paul, in essence, being served his own medicine by God. And that's the point. It wasn't enough for Paul to be brilliant. It wasn't enough for him to know the Bible better than anyone else. It wasn't enough for him to have the boldness of a lion. He needed to learn empathy. He needed to learn humility. And he needed to experience suffering. There are certain things that you cannot learn as a leader from a book. King David knew that, as all good leaders do. He said in Psalm 119, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. Now, did David not have a copy of the Torah? Well, of course he did. According to Deuteronomy 17, David would have had to write a copy of the Torah by hand before he became king. So David knew the book. David knew the Bible. But there are some things that you can't learn just by reading the Bible. Now, that may offend some of you, but it's true. There are certain things that you can only learn in the school of affliction. And Paul had to spend some time there to become the sort of leader God wanted him to be. Then secondly, it would seem from our reading of Acts 9 that God sent Paul to Tarsus because there is a time for war and a time for peace. The wise preacher says that in Ecclesiastes 3. There's a time to tear, a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. See, a lot of what wisdom is, according to the Bible, comes down to knowing what time it is. Wisdom is about knowing how to behave in certain circumstances. Wisdom is about understanding that there is not one right way to act. There is not one right way to speak. There is not one right way to be a leader. And Paul needed to understand that. Paul came out of the gate like a man on fire. He was a war machine. He knew the Bible better than anybody else. He had a story like nobody else. He had a mind like nobody else. And he was operating more or less independently, which is a recipe 
for conflict. Paul was not a derivative apostle, right? He didn't learn the gospel the way you and I did, through some kind of succession down from eyewitnesses. No, no. Paul tells us that he received what he knew by revelation, Galatians 1. He says that God was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anybody, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remain with him 15 days. By the way, so if you've got your Bible open, just look, lift your eyes up to Acts 9.23. You see the little phrase there? When many days had passed? I mean, there, there is a whole world of time beneath some of those little connective particles in, in a story like Acts. Uh, right? Like, you know, in Mark's gospel, it'll, it'll, it'll say things like all the time, like, and immediately he went here. And immediately. But if you compare that to the other gospels, you realize, hey, we just skipped like three weeks. Well, here in Acts, under when many days had passed in verse 23, that's skipping three years. Paul fills in the blank in Galatians 1, right? After three years, I went up to Jerusalem. So here's how it went. Paul was in Damascus. That's where he got converted. Then at some point, he went into Arabia. What exactly went on in there? We wonder. But he went into Arabia. Then he came back into Damascus, where he ministered for some time. Then he went up to Jerusalem. All that was after three years. Luke picks up the story in Acts 9.26, which, of course, raises the question, what in the world happened to Paul in the desert of Arabia? Paul says that God revealed the Son to him, revealed Jesus to him. Now, we presume that means more than just God taught Paul about Jesus, it appears to mean that Paul had an encounter with the living Jesus, the risen Jesus. We don't know as much about that as we would like. Paul doesn't say as much about that as we would like, but he refers to it. In Ephesians 3, 2 to 3, he says, you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. So Paul keeps referring to the fact that he's no secondhand apostle. He's a first-hand apostle. He's learned what he's learned by revelation. Well, when did that happen? Again, we, we don't know for sure, but we presume it happened in the desert of Arabia. After his decade in Tarsus, so now we're fast-forwarding, after his decade in Tarsus, Paul looked back to a time before his decade in Tarsus and said this, I know a man who 14 years ago, you got to keep these numbers in your brain, who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. Now we're almost certain that Paul's speaking about himself there because just a few verses later he says, to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation. Well, listen, let's state the obvious. If I knew a guy who had revelations, I would not need a thorn in the flesh. He would need a thorn in the flesh to keep him from becoming conceited. So Paul says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. So Paul had such incredible revelatory experiences that he actually had to be given a physical disability. A physical disability was ordained for him to keep him from becoming conceited. 
Again, we'd like to know more about that than we do. But here's what we know. Before his decade of exile in Tarsus, Paul had already had incredible revelatory experiences. So he was brilliant. He had a once-in-a-generation mind. He had a great story, a great testimony, and he had incredible spiritual experiences. And as such, when he began interacting in the Jewish scene in Jerusalem, he went off in that context like a bomb. Like Moses coming down the mountain with his face all aglow, there was no way for Paul to hide who he was or what had happened to him. And there was no way for his ministry not to spark a wholesale conflict with the Jews. And it was not the right time for that. It was too early in the process for that kind of definitive showdown. So he was sent off to Tarsus and enrolled in a 10-year postgraduate program in the School of Affliction. And in that season of lowered tensions, the church grew, sidelining this electric character actually bought the church a season to consolidate and to heal. Look at the last verse in the story we read, Acts 9.31. So, that word matters. So, meaning because Paul had been sent away, because this incredible leader had been sent into obscurity. So, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Here's something we need to understand, friends. The church was not designed for constant conflict. The church is a body, not a machine. And bodies need time to rest and recuperate. When I was in high school, I read the book, All Quiet on the Western Front, uh, I, don't, I know that the reading list in high school has changed dramatically. I have five kids. My oldest is 25. My youngest is 11. So I'm constantly horrified by the books you're reading now in high school. It's a common topic of concern around our dinner table. But when I was in high school, we had to read the book, All Quiet on the Western Front. Now, they just made a movie about this on Netflix that apparently has won a bunch of awards. Has anybody seen that? A handful of you have. I'm not recommending it, so meaning I don't because I haven't seen it. So don't go watch it and then be offended that I recommended it. I have no idea whether it's good or bad. I just heard it has won a bunch of, of awards. It's an incredibly significant book. And I remember reading it, and, and I remember the, one of the impressions that that book made on me was actually how little time the soldiers actually spent on the front lines in World War I. I guess in my mind, I just thought, the same people were in the trench for the whole time. But most of the action and narrative in All Quiet on the Western Front happens as Paul Baumer and his friends are off the line, resting and recuperating. Because, of course, that's how war works. Human beings cannot endure constant conflict. They can fight for a few hours. They can stand watch for a few days. But then they need to come off the line. They need to rest, they need to eat, they need to sleep, they need to shave, they need to write letters to their sweethearts, they need to hope. And so it is with the church. The church cannot endure constant conflict. 
There is a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Woe to the Christian leader who doesn't understand that. Woe to the church saddled with a leader who doesn't understand that. There is a time for the warrior's sword and there is a time for the servant's towel. There's a time for conflict. There's a time to withdraw, retool, and rest. And the Apostle Paul, early on in his Christian career, had only one posture. And it wasn't the posture that was most needed for the next season in the life of that church. And so he was sent away for further training. And other leaders, for about a decade, took center stage. He was out of sight, but of course he was not out of mind. At the right time, as a much better man, he reemerged to serve the Lord faithfully in another critical season. Thanks be to God. So that's the story of Paul's hidden years in Tarsus. But why do they matter? What's the takeaway for us? Why would we bother doing all that work to sort of grab these little puzzle pieces from Paul's letters to try to piece together what Luke more or less skips over. What's the takeaway? That's what I want to spend our last few minutes looking at. I think for me, every time I revisit this story, and, and I revisit it a couple times a year because of the RMM Bible reading journey, the main impression the story makes on me every time I read it is the fact that clearly God is not in our kind of hurry. I get the same impression every time I read the story of Moses. Uh, I just finished in the RMM reading the, the story of Moses. We're still in it, but the story of Moses' preparation uh, about two weeks ago. Interesting story. In fact, there's a lot of parallels, aren't there, between the, the story of Moses and the story of the Apostle Paul. Both of them had great stories. You know, Moses was saved from a season of genocide, so he was a genocide survivor. That's interesting. And then, of course, he was raised in Pharaoh's household, that's interesting. Stephen, in his speech about Moses, tells us that Moses was educated in all the wisdom of Egypt. So like Paul, he had an incredible education, had an incredible story. And then also like Paul, he began his ministry career in kind of an explosive fashion. Do you remember Moses' first act as redeemer? He found a, an Egyptian harassing an Israelite. And so he beat the Egyptian to death with his hands and buried him in the sand that's impressive. Uh, not highly sanctified, but impressive, right? There's some, there's some zeal there. And you think, all right, we're on to something here. We got ourselves a highly, highly educated, really charismatic. Obviously, he's a manly man, right? Like, I don't, I don't know anybody beat anyone to death with their bare hands today. Like, it's a pretty impressive, you know, guy, comes onto the scene, and then immediately is sent into obscurity in the desert of Midian for 40 years. That's actually where that line comes from. A.P. Baker, in his commentary on that story, said, clearly, God is not in our kind of hurry. Same thing with the Apostle Paul, right? Arguably the greatest weapon ever entrusted to the church of Jesus Christ, right? Incredible individual. 
and yet he's sent into obscurity for a decade. He spent a decade making tents, studying Greek culture, and annoying his local synagogue leaders. Just like Moses spent 40 years tending sheep in the desert. By the way, just like David spent 13 years in the caves of Judea writing psalms and poetry. You know that, right? David burst, David burst onto the scene kind of like Moses, kind of like Paul. Man on fire, right? Slaying giants, literally. But then what happens? He's, an, he's anointed to be king, but then he's on the run for 13 years, living caves. Just like Joseph. Joseph spent 13 years languishing in prison and serving as a slave in Egypt. Clearly, God is not in our kind of hurry. When we see a talented young person, we want them to be given a platform now, right? And if you ever try to use the phrase, you know, uh, well, young people are the church of tomorrow, someone will shout you down and say, hey, young people are the church of today. Sit down, boomer, right? Give that young person a microphone. Hand over the keys to the megachurch. Give them a book deal. We want it now. What could possibly go wrong with that? Well, as we've learned over the last decade or two in evangelicalism, quite a lot, actually. It turns out slow and steady really is the right way to build high-caliber leaders. That hasn't been an easy lesson for us to learn because we live in a culture. We live in a culture that worships youth and that wants everything done now, right? We're a microwave culture, not a crockpot culture. But the problem is God is a crockpot God. He throws people into the soup. Some of you are like crockpot. Who is this guy, right? <laughs> my crockpots crock are part of my childhood. So you don't know this, but back, back in the old days, before you went to church on Sunday morning, your mom would throw some stuff, chop some vegetables, throw some meat in, a, in this magic pot. And she would turn it on. And when you came home, there was like something in there, like a lasagna and a loaf of garlic bread. It was incredible. <laughs> I don't know. I wasn't involved a lot in what happened there. I just know it was amazing and slow. That's the point. Right? God is a crockpot God. He does things real slow. He throws leaders into the soup. And he lets them stew for a very long time. Listen, I, funny thing is, I didn't really, like I said, I actually wrote this message for my church. My church is very multi-generational. So I had something different in my mind when I wrote this. I kind of planned on looking out and saying a wise pastoral word to the older folks about, you know, believing in potential and identifying potential, but then also a kind of caution to younger folks, don't be in too much of a hurry. Looking out here, this is the youngest church I think I've spoken to in a long time. So maybe what you need to hear is this. Don't be in too much of a hurry. Trust God that he knows what he's doing. If, if you're in a desert today, if it feels like you've been sidelined or exiled, if you're wondering when you're going to get your chance to shine, be encouraged. My reading of the Bible suggests to me that you are exactly where God wants you to be. So be faithful and fruitful wherever you are. Make the best tents in Tarsus. Be the best shepherd in Midian.
write poetry and prayers in the cave of Abdullam. And rest assured that God has not lost sight of you. And when it is time, when he thinks it is time, you shall come forth as gold. God is slow, but that's because he makes things that last. So trust the process. Second thing I think the story is reminding us is that no leader is indispensable to the process, to the mission. The book of Acts makes that point again and again and again. This is the first time we're seeing it, but if you've read through the book of Acts, you know you bump into this point again and again and again. If you get your Bible open to Acts 9, just flip maybe two pages to the right to Acts 12. Look at the first two verses there, Acts 12, 1 to 2. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. James, the brother of John. If you've read the Gospels, you know that James was one of the inner three. Remember, there were 12 disciples, but there were clearly three who were kind of the inner core. They were Jesus' three lieutenants, Peter, James, and John. That's this James. They got to do things that nobody else, they, they had educational experiences nobody else was allowed to participate in. It was only these three that went with Jesus up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Did I lose my mic? No, I'm good. It was only these three who went inside when Jesus raised that little girl from the dead. James was a top-tier Christian leader. And yet, for whatever reason, he dies in like the third episode of the second season of the show. You're like, what is going on? How does that make sense? Same thing happens again in Acts 15. Flip over a couple pages there. Paul and Barnabas, they decide at the end of Acts 15 that they're going to actually go on two different circuits. They couldn't agree on what the best approach was for the second trip, so they just decide to multiply. Paul's going to go one way with Silas. Barnabas is going to go the other way with John Mark. All right. We never hear another word from Barnabas again. It disappears from the story. Barnabas was like the, he's the best character in the first half of the book. It was his incredible act of generosity in Acts chapter 4. It says he sold some property, put the whole amount at the disposal of the, of the apostles. It was Barnabas's incredible generosity that allowed them to fund the food ministry in Acts chapter 6. And then it was Barnabas who was entrusted to get things sorted out in Antioch when the church made this great leap forward and started doing multi-ethnic church had never been done before. They sent Barnabas to sort that out. It was his leadership. It was his vision to bring in Paul. He was pretty much the best character in the first half of the book of Exodus, or first half of the book of Acts. And then all of a sudden, he's gone. According to church history, he was martyred in Cyprus, stoned by the Jews outside the synagogue in Salamis. There's a message in there for us, I think. And the message is that no leader is indispensable to the mission of the church. This is about Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his spirit, his present intercession. It's about him. He is the only indispensable one.
the rest of us, you know, we play our part. We spend our talents. We spill our blood if required. We die and we are forgotten. And the church of Jesus Christ marches on. This is his story, not our story. Thanks be to God. And then one last thing. I think the story of Paul's hidden years in Tarsus is intended to remind all of us of the necessity of quiet, solitude, and obscurity. Paul's preparation for ministry involved two seasons in the desert, one in the actual desert of Arabia, and then one in the metaphorical desert in Tarsus. Paul needed that time. Paul was made in that time. And so it is with all leaders. Real leadership is forged in quiet. You can't become in the spotlight. You can't hear in the hubbub and din of day-to-day ministry. All of that has to be sourced from somewhere else. It has to be sourced in the place of quiet, solitude, and obscurity. Paul needed those years. He needed that depth of well to sustain him through the challenges that lay ahead. There's a fellow on our board. It was mentioned I've been at the church for 17 years. And I think, I I didn't run the math, but I think he's been the chair of the board for about half that time. Really faithful guy. And a number of years ago, he started giving me a hard time because I wasn't taking all of my vacation time. And I said, listen, you know, I don't, I don't have enough you know, money necessarily to go on vacation with my family for each of the weeks that I've been given. So when I can take my kids and my wife, I'll go somewhere. But then otherwise, you know, I don't want to just sit around the house, uh, you know, twiddling my thumbs. So I, I just, I tend to work through those weeks. And he said, well, we don't want you doing that anymore. By the way, that's interesting. Most churches would be very happy for their pastor to work through the vacation. He says, we don't want you doing that anymore. He says, I'm going to hold you accountable. I want you to take every single week of your vacation time. The first year he was successful in getting me to do that was 2019. And so, you know, we, with, as a family, we went and did some stuff. And then on the other weeks, I literally, I just kicked around the house. I spent extra time every morning in the Word. I went for lots of extra long walks. I had extended times in prayer. And it's a good thing I did because hard on the heels of that year came COVID-19 and the three most exhausting years in pastoral ministry I've ever experienced in my life. God knows what he's doing. I've taken that advice to heart. And so that's actually one of the reasons I'm here this morning. I'm taking this week off, this week that starts today, taking this week off, even though we're going to do some stuff as a family over March break, but I had the extra week, so I took the extra week. This week, I'm not doing anything other than spending extra long times in the Word, going for lots of walks, spending time with the Lord, because I've learned the wisdom of always leaving the garage with a full tank of gas in the car, because you don't know what twists and turns lie ahead. Quiet matters. Solitude matters. Time alone with Jesus 
matters. We need that. We need that every day. We need to fight for those hours of quiet because that is where strength is found. That is where character is forged. That is where wells are dug that will nourish and sustain our souls through all the challenges and opportunities that we'll face in the years and decades ahead. You know, one of the things I said to, uh, I, I mentor a group of young pastors, one of the things I, I said to them in the bad days of COVID is I said, listen, because one of the questions I got asked like every other day during COVID is, do you think this is like the apocalypse? Do you think this is the sign of the end? You know, do you think the Lord's coming back next Tuesday? And I would always say yes, no. I, I, I don't say, listen, I don't know. Nobody knows, right? But I'll tell you this. I, I have a feeling that COVID is just a dress rehearsal. That, that COVID is just a stress test so that we can learn some stuff. That we have, in the mercy of God, can you imagine if a great end times crisis fell on the fat, lazy, self-indulgent church of North America circa 2019? It would have blown us apart. We wouldn't have stood a chance of being useful. So what did the Lord do? Oh, he sent us into the desert, didn't he? Where character is forged, where voices are heard, where leadership approaches are broadened and refined. He made us who we are today because he knew the challenges and opportunities that lie ahead. That's what I'd leave with you. Trust the Lord. Don't be in a hurry. If you had your way, you'd get there before you were ready. Trust the process. And trust the one who is Lord over the process, who loves you, and who sees the whole board. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful for these sorts of reminders in the Bible of your quiet, wise providence. And I'm so thankful for this church. And Lord, I'm aware that they're going through a season of transition. Lord, I pray that you would give them peace, that they would remember that this, is, this church is about Jesus. It's not about any one leader. Lord, you've got leaders in mind for the next stage. Lord, you have probably been preparing the leaders for the next stage of this church's life in places of quiet and obscurity elsewhere because that's how you work. You play a long game. You see the whole board. You are wise and you are good. So bless this church. Give them what they need for the years and decades ahead. Use them. Use them mightily in ways they perhaps cannot even imagine today. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.